Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything the Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. Hello and welcome to B2B Better. My name is Jason Bradwell and on each episode I talk about how companies can use marketing to navigate big moments of change. Whether this is gearing up for a new funding round, launching a new product, pivoting in response to market trends or sitting on either side of an acquisition, I break down modern day B2B marketing strategies into actionable advice with guests who've seen it all before. Let me help you be better than boring. Let's go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Charlie O'Donnell, founder and general partner at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. How are you doing, Charlie? Good. How are you? I am doing very well. As we were just talking about before we started recording, my three-year-old's just come back home. She's being forced into a bath after a long day at nursery. So we may have a little bit of static at the beginning of this, but we've both agreed just to fight through it. Absolutely. Although after a long day of nursery for me, there's nothing I look forward to more than a bath. You and me both. You and me both. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I've spent most of my career in venture capital, which started out on the institutional limited partner sides. So most people don't really think about the big money behind some of these funds, but I used to work at the General Motors Pension Fund, investing in both funds and later stage directs. So we, GGM had been invent, invested in venture since the early 80s, same thing for private equity, in all the kind of top tier funds for a long time. And so it really gave me sort of a bird's eye view of the whole market. It was a super interesting time to join venture because I started in February of 01. If you think about the timing of the market, I saw 10 negative quarters of performance in venture capital before I ever saw a positive one. All we did was write down companies, shut them down, fire people, and try and salvage the remnants of the, the dot-com bubble. Yeah, venture capital seemed like a terrible asset class when I started my career. After that, I became the first analyst at Union Square Ventures. They had actually pitched me to raise their fund, which is how I met them. Spent a little time dabbling in startups, nothing particularly successful, and then came back to venture to help First Ground Capital open up their New York office. I spent a couple of years there before 
starting my own fund, which will be 10 years old at the end of 2022. And so I've raised three funds, about $15 million fund that we're operating out of now, Solo GP. I am a married father of one and have lived in New York City my whole life. I was looking a little bit on the Brooklyn Bridge Ventures website before we started talking, and there's a little snippet at the bottom of your profile which says that you have not left the five boroughs for more than three weeks in your entire life. Now, is that is that true or is three, that... Three weeks consecutively, not three weeks consecutively. Oh, okay, fine. That's an important distinction. Yeah. <laughs> That would be the that would be a little bit like the doomsday clock that just moves like a centimeter like each time I step out. But no, consecutive. I've taken trips. I've traveled. Went to Japan with my wife. Drove across the country years ago. But even still, it's always been my primary address. I went to college here, and I think for me, it's not necessarily an unwillingness to leave. It's just everything that I've wanted has been here. Grew up here. Family is is all local. Wanted to study finance unless I was maybe going to do international finance, go to London or somewhere else like that. Like just made sense to be in New York. And then the, the other pivot point that I could have made is I did apply to Stanford uh, for grad school back in, that would have been 05 or 06, maybe? No, 06. I guess when I was right around when I was like in the middle of being at Union Square Ventures and, and they didn't accept me. So they didn't want me, but I probably would have gone to the West. I'm so lucky that they didn't accept me because I would have been one of many Stanford MBAs looking to find a job in venture. But instead I hopped on with what became one of the top venture funds in the, in the world and began my venture career on the fund investing side, on the direct investing side, rather, at a really pivotal moment for New York. So if I just chart my career starting in 05, if you just take the index fund of New York venture careers starting at that time, you got a lot of wind at your back. And so it was a great opportunity to get to know the community, to help build the community, and to really get embedded here. Now, I can't imagine being anywhere else. This affinity with New York and specifically Brooklyn is not just something that you have adopted in your personal life, but it's also part of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures DNA. If I'm right in understanding, uh, you only invest in companies who are based in New York. So tell me a little bit about the decision behind that and a little bit more about Brooklyn Bridge Ventures and the kind of companies that you choose to invest in. Yeah, sure. I always joke around that I need to be able to bike to the company. And, and while I have uh, biked fairly decent distances. I've done half irons and, and hundred mile bike races and stuff that, that does limit that circle a little bit. And a part of the reason, if nothing else is like, there's more than enough for me to do here. So it has become the second largest venture capital community in the world. And so I have so much deal flow that the idea of quadrupling that funnel to maybe do one or two non-New York City deals a year, just from a time and effort solo GP perspective, doesn't really make sense. It also is a function of how I want to work with founders. And I work with super early stage founders, probably about 50% of the companies that I've backed have not launched yet. So it requires a certain kind of relationship. And sometimes it requires 
stopping by the office and or or going out to lunch and and just saying, hey, how's everything going? Or that board meeting just something didn't feel right. What's going on here? It's also helpful to know the community really well for to for diligence. Right. If you start a company in New York, even if we've never met, I know someone who knows you in all likelihood. Either you've worked at some other startup or even if you haven't worked at some other startup, like you may be a member of the food co-op with some with somebody that I know. I, I run a kayaking program on the Brooklyn waterfront in the East River, and I know founders through that. So it does really help to know the landscape here and to have plenty of work to do here. So we are recording this podcast episode to help educate founders, particularly the founders that of the ilk that you work with who are either pre-launch or very shortly after launch, understand how they can use marketing to accelerate their, their business growth. And the first question I'd like to put with you is, as an investor, how are you finding potential targets. You touched on it a little bit there in the sense of the kind of community that you're a part of and you've built within 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 the New York City. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to get a sense of the kind of channels that founders who are looking to speak to people like you can leverage to start a conversation. So I run my firm a little differently than most firms. I'm really trying to be the most accessible VC in New York. And if you think about a typical firm, right, you've got these like concentric circles of networking and you've got who the general partner knows and then who they know. And, and most of that for experienced partners, the people that they've backed before, right? And you could be the, on the board of a hundred person company. Maybe you've met some of the senior folks, but for the vast majority of the employees of that company, you have not met them. And so relatively speaking, that network is actually pretty small in terms of who you actually know. And you go one one circle out, it's certainly more people. Everybody's network kind of looks like themselves too. So my network is like disproportionately white and college educated and perhaps bald. I'm not sure how much it is literally a function of looking like you, but that's somewhat limited and it is not necessarily where I believe all of the top founders will come from. And so then you figure, okay, I want to get a look at the next best 50 companies to be coming out of New York City in the next decade. How are they going to reach me? And so what I've tried to build is, is something with as few barriers between me and them as possible, while still maintaining appropriate levels of engagement, because you do have time management to deal with, right? You can't take a meeting with everyone. So I'll do things like over the past nine or 10 years, I've done these networking dinners, for example, and we would split the cost of a chef. The host would eat for free and we hosted at somebody's apartment. Last summer, we did a couple of rooftop ones to be COVID safe and we would do them. So over the past 10 years, I've had dinner with a thousand people and the interaction and engagement half-life of a dinner is long. You remember who you actually sat down and broke bread with. So I have plenty of emails in my inbox that are like, uh, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I came to the Greenpoint dinner a few years ago. Actually, it's funny. I literally have a deal in my inbox this morning that is a guy who has bootstrapped a business to a million dollars of ARR, who came to a dinner that was hosted by Shanlin Ma, who is the CEO of Zola. That was 
I think three apartments ago, if I think about it from where Shan lives in Red Hook now, but it was in Cobble Hill. And the bar for attending one of those dinners is not super high. You're a member of the startup community, you live in a neighborhood, you put a little reasonable bio in the chat that makes it seem like you'd be an okay dinner guest and, uh, and we'll take chances on you. And I'll do uh, another event called Not a Pitch, which is basically you're working on something maybe you came up with yesterday. I'm fine with that. And you just give me a minute about what you're working on. Hey, I came up with this idea. I haven't built anything yet. Here's where I am. What do you think? And I'll give you a minute back. And we do it in a public forum. And it could be very helpful directional feedback. A lot of times my feedback might be, oh, hey, actually somebody tried to work on that three years ago and they worked on it for a year. It didn't work out. I don't remember the reason why. Here's the person's name. Go find them. Go save yourself the next six months of working on it. Hey, maybe it's a good idea today, but at least find out why it didn't work out then. And then all the usual sort of referrals and my email is right on the site is charlie at brooklynbridge.vc. Like, I don't care about warm intros. Like we don't need to know somebody in common. And, And frankly, like, I find it a bit silly and a waste of everybody's time that you go for coffee with someone who knows me so that you can network your way to the warm intro. It's like that person you went for coffee with is not a VC. I have the time, like my portfolio founders send me the worst deals, right? They're great founders, terrible VCs. I, I just try and be really as open as possible, but I do have a relatively high bar for taking a one-on-one meeting. I'll go back and forth on email a few times and, and, and ask a few questions before I commit both of us to 45 minutes of back and forth. Because if I can't see myself possibly getting to a yes, I'm, I'm not going to waste your time. Yeah, that makes total sense. What I'm hearing is you placing yourself at the kind of center of the, the kind of New York VC founder community and removing as many barriers as you say to enable founders just to get in touch with you directly and just field out whether there is something to talk about instead of if we could flip it for a second instead of you going to the market do you find yourself if a founder is putting on a dinner or if they're organizing some sort of community event do you find yourself attracted to those or if a founder is being a contributor to the community within nyc it kind of the relationship starting the other way around if that makes sense yeah for sure for sure first of all do you think more founders should do stuff like that i i I think very few actually do and i think it is well worth investment of their time not just for marketing themselves for a fundraising but just to be in the flow of of people and best practices. If you are the person who runs the B2B marketing meetup, right? Like you're probably not gonna have trouble hiring your first B2B marketer at the company. You're gonna know everyone. You're gonna know what you're looking for. You're gonna have a sense of how to structure your company when it's four people versus 40 versus 400 in terms of that function. So you'll learn a lot. It, it does seem like a heavy lift for people upfront, but as somebody who manages a 17,000 person newsletter that I've been doing for 11 years and blogging for 17 years or whatever, you, you get into a habit with it and, and you find a way to make it work seamlessly for you. So I, I personally think that more founders should do that. I, I think in terms of being invited to stuff, 
you know, like the reality is I have a higher bar now for attending stuff. And this is aside from the pandemic, I even do this with friends. Somebody's like, oh, I'm hosting a dinner. And the reality is like, I want to hang out with my daughter <laughs> sort of more. Like I love my friends, but my daughter's fun to hang out with. And so it's pretty, pretty high bar to pull me out of the house these days for stuff. But, but if I can be, if, if a founder can provide me an opportunity to be useful to more than just them, that is, I'll show up to any speaking thing, any podcast invite or what have you, because it is really hard to, stay, to, to start out and to get this information and to get good information. Ways, if, if, if founders willing to do some of that legwork to enable me to be a more of a resource for the community, I'll show up anywhere to do that. Let's say that you find a company that you're interested in exploring uh, a potential investment in. It's quite a unique, it's quite a specific stage of that company's life cycle that you are entering and considering signing a check. As you mentioned, it's mm -hmm. usually pre-launch or shortly thereafter. And a symptom of a lot of these companies, just because they're busy building whatever it is that they want to build, is that marketing falls a little bit on the back burner. I'm curious right. to hear from you as a VC, is marketing part of that, is marketing part of the conversation at all during that due diligence process and as you're considering an investment? And if so, in what way? So it's interesting because most of the companies don't actually have a marketing function quite yet. Right. And so it's tough to make part of the due diligence process, especially because the reality is that the founder may not have ever seen a high-functioning marketing practice. They may have built something really interesting that is would be successful if a great marketing function was put on top of it, but maybe the founder is technical or maybe the founder is sales-oriented and just always imagined marketing to be this lead generation machine that they would then make the most of, but never actually seen it. So to some extent, what you're really diligencing is the founder's ability to recruit and their ability to vet people and whether this is a person that somebody would want to work with. Somebody just mentioned a candidate to me and said something about the candidate's background, about what they were in charge of. And it was just so obvious to me from their LinkedIn profile that they weren't the key person at that company, that their resume, like I saw right through the resume. I was like, ah, I see why they made it, that they described it in this way because there's actually somebody above them who's in charge of that and this other thing. And at first glance, like if you weren't a sophisticated hire, a hiring manager, I could see how you'd be like, oh, this person ran this particular aspect of this company. And it's no, they didn't actually. That person is a mid-level person who did not set strategy or, or for example, like timing, right? Oh, they came from marketing at Warby Parker. They must be really good at it. So, yeah, but unless they've been working there for what, 11 years, they didn't build the marketing function at Warby Parker. If you're the, the 20th person on the marketing team there, the machine was built before you got there. And uh, hey, you may be 
a really curious and discerning person. I've spent a lot of time dissecting why it works, trying to figure out how you would do differently and, and really cozied up to the person who actually did build it or the founders or whatever. But that's what you're really vetting as opposed to you see VC sometimes start asking about your CAC seems a little high for the $3,000 of marketing spend you're doing <laughs> a, a, a month that you've been doing for two and a half months. Dude, that's not the least bit relevant to anything. It's like barely a test. It's probably twice as high as it needs to be because they're not spending enough money. And oh, by the way, it was a technical founder who like, it was more doing it to get beta users than they were actually building a, a marketing function. So it, it's tough, but it is also critically important for the success of the company. And really it's funny because I just tweeted out yesterday, how many first hires of B2B SaaS companies um, stayed and grew into the top marketer at that company through the call it series C and beyond. It's not a long list. No. Actually. Because I think so many of those initial hires are not great hires, to be honest. I'm curious, over your long tenure working in in, in VC, has the appetite from founders in regards to marketing changed at all, particularly in a B2B context, because your B2B marketing gets a bad rap. Historically, it's never really been seen as a massive growth driver within businesses to varying degrees. Are you seeing more and more B2B founders coming to you now and saying, look, we know there's a there's an opportunity here and there's a gap in our current skill set that we need to fill versus five, 10 years ago when it wasn't even coming up in, in conversation? Yeah, I certainly think there's more awareness. Like you had me at that final piece of, of the comparison, right? Where, whereas maybe 10 years ago, I think it was, first of all, like the world was more enterprisey as you go back. The idea that you would, you had to get pretty big before you decided to provide air cover to your AEs who are doing all the hunting and pecking themselves, basically. Now, when you are hoping to bring inbound leads that before they even talk to a salesperson who might sign up before they talk to a salesperson, that's something where you notice you have a, a shortcut sign up to take a portfolio company from Spotify or something like that. And it didn't require a salesperson for that person, for that group to sign up themselves. You may decide to bring in a customer success person or an enterprise salesperson into that once you see the growth and engagement and talking to those teams about how it could spread within the organization and stuff. So as, as the consumerization of the enterprise has taken hold, you've definitely seen more of a focus on lead generation. And because there are a why of somebody who starts off at $19 a month or $9 a month or $49 a month, whatever that those plans are. It just doesn't make sense to put a salesperson on it, but it might make sense to do some paid acquisition or some SEO or what have you. There's a big debate, as you know, I'm sure um, in marketing circles right now around this kind of brand versus demand balance and how the pendulum has swung way too far onto the demand side of things where it's cause and effect. We throw more money into paid, we will get in more customers, we'll acquire more customers. But actually that is missing out on securing that out-of-market demand for your customers who may not be ready to buy today, but may be ready to buy tomorrow. How much of a consideration in your portfolio of companies is that idea of brand? Because they're very early on in their, in, in their life cycles. Are they thinking about it at the grassroots or does it come a little bit later on? 
So I think what is being called brand marketing today is actually just a catch-all for any way to acquire customers not on Facebook or Google, basically. And so you've, you've got people trying out a lot of stuff and they may not be able to do attribution properly and just gets lumped into brand marketing, right? When you start buying bus and subway ads and I, it was just a, a clip, a ClickUp ad Mm. on the Super Bowl and uh, didn't even make clear exactly what I would use ClickUp for. Is that a really thoughtful piece of brand marketing or did, are they tapped out on Google ads basically and just looking for somewhere else to put their venture dollars, so to speak? And, and by the way, I think that is important. I look at a lot of companies with the amount of direct paid demand uh, generation spend that they're doing on a very limited number of platforms. And I wonder whether or not the ROI might be better if you just took all of that money and said, we're going to do a anything but that, right? With all this capital. It reminds me a little bit of actually um, Back when I was at the General Motors Pension Fund, we used to talk about strategies that were high alpha manager-driven strategies. So when you invest in large cap US equities, the ring around the index is pretty tight, right? You're basically, you're going to be holding Apple and Facebook and all of the major names. So maybe you hold a little less or a little more of one thing versus another. But for the most part, all of the U.S. large cap managers are plus or minus 2% from the benchmark. So you're, you're really, you're paying a fair amount of money to basically get the benchmark return. Whereas in venture capital, it's not the swing between top quartile managers and bottom quartile managers. is huge. You get nothing from being just in the asset class. You really need to be with the managers that perform. And I, I think about marketing channels much the same way, where I would want to spend as much as possible on channels where if I had really talented people, I could knock it out of the park versus, yeah, sure, I buy some keywords here and there or whatever, but there's so little margin for being better at buying keywords or be better than anybody else at, at, at that demand gen. And it, it becomes a commodity. You drive down your nearest competitors are driving up the cost of the keyword or what have you. Some of your, and your nearest competitor may be doing it unprofitably because they just raised a big, stupid venture round. And so now you're faced with this choice of, do I also, you know, go raise another round? Cause I got to compete with this idiot to bring in these unprofitable customers. Whereas you do a really good job with, with a referral program or with a podcast that becomes the industry leader, the go-to, whatever, or, or a series of events, I think that could be super, super powerful and really a much better marketing moat. It's a really interesting thought experiment, particularly for the companies that you choose to invest in at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, because you look at a day doesn't go by where I don't see a tweet saying B2B companies need to be media companies and we need to be creating content and creating this content mode. And then the regular examples are thrown out there of like HubSpot buying the hustle, but HubSpot is HubSpot, right? It, it oh. has the money to throw around to buy a big newsletter for kind of pre-seed and seed organizations, it's got to be quite a daunting challenge 
to, to experiment with those more, let's call it brand-focused channels where the return on investment is a little bit unclear because I would assume they're trying to maximize as many shots as they take to, to hit the bullseye. And there is just more uncertainty around if we create a podcast, is anyone going to come and listen? I guess my question around that from you is as a VC, your app, your appetite for hearing those proposals from these companies and whether any of the organizations from your portfolio have wielded those kind of channels to, to any effect? And what did that look like? So I would disagree that actually it's less predictable. I think if you actually committed to, we, we went out and re-researched podcast best practices and decided to be in a consistent cadence and reached out and interviewed people that people want to hear. And we combined that with a newsletter and the newsletter is a synopsis of the podcast and what we learned or blah, 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 whatever. Content marketers will tell you that what they do is much more science than people realize, right? You do a certain cadence, there are best practices around engagement and metrics and all of that sort of stuff. And the more effort you put into it, there should be a certain amount of lead gen sort of coming out with it. I had a portfolio company called Artemis that was in the indoor farming space, and they recently got bought out by a, another private company in the space. They, they merged and they did the state of indoor farming and, and they did this industry survey and they partnered up with some media company, some ag newsletter thing, whatever it's, and totally opened up their the founder's address book and, and invited everybody else to participate in this study for a long time. It was their number one lead driver. When you actually count the amount of hours and costs they put into the study. And it was because it was an area that like no one had good data on. Are you planning on spending more money on hardware this year? What is your most profitable indoor crop? All of this sort of team size structure? Do you insource or outsource your accounting function? Like you name it. People love the survey. They shared it. They engaged with it. They looked forward to responding to it. That's in a way, it's just like when you're talking about founders inviting me to stuff. If you give me an opportunity to be helpful to the community, I will do that. If your marketing helps me do my job better, 100% people are going to engage with it. It's not even a question. I think that people, if they did more of that kind of thing and actually committed to it, I actually think it's just more of a mental block and an apprehension of what if nobody listens to our podcast? You don't just throw it up on Spotify and hope that it goes viral. <laughs> like you market the podcast, right? You tell everyone about it. You're posting it on LinkedIn, like all the time. You pick guests that have a following. There's a way to do this. It's not a, it's not an accident that Harry Stebbings created this 20 VC. The dude was more routine about, you know, it was like each podcast was, it was like a person and it came out a certain day and it was 20 minutes. And then he asked you whether there was anybody else that should be on the podcast. And then he would take your snippet and tweet at three other, you know, VCs or like, Hey, Charlie said this, what do you think partner at Excel? But like, Get that down to a science. And I think that there's a way to go about it for sure. I can definitely vouch for that one piece of hero content that then fuels your content strategy for a year or more. Very similar to Artemis. I've been across campaigns where we've just created one piece of state of industry report. We did one back in 2018. To this day, a month doesn't go by where I don't get Google notifications where that report is being referenced in some 
other kind of third party uh, data aggregate study or news article or something like that. And, Dude, I've uh, written a couple of how to raise your first VC fund, and I'm not in the business of helping other VCs, right? Once a month, somebody finds that post and, and reaches out to me. And that is a very specific targeted audience. And so if I was in the business of selling things to VCs, because there's just not a lot written about supporting VCs. And I wasn't even trying. So it's not that hard. What do you think is the most important aspect of marketing that the companies, the kind of companies that you're investing in should be focusing on getting right? I mean, I think the, the people aspects, and it's more so than anything else. If you don't get, so if you don't invest the time into the hiring process, it's very hard for you to be successful. And both the time in terms of like, how do I learn how to do this? How do I make sure I'm seeing enough people? How do I define, do the research to define the job? I think like that, all of those pieces really comes down to creating a really good recruiting process. And it is totally a function of time and effort. One more question for you, Charlie, and then we'll finish up. What do you think is the biggest change in how B2B companies will market themselves in the next five years? It's all going to be done in the metaverse world. It's going to be... I bought an Oculus the other day. Uh, oh, did it. you? Yeah, I did. Because uh, my brother bought one. He bought one and he bought it around and I had a bit of a play on it. And I was playing, what's it called? It's like Blades and Chaos or something. It is like Skyrim. If you ever played Skyrim or Oblivion mm -hmm. or any of those games, it's like that in VR. And it's quite simple. It's just sword fighting and casting spells. Right. But right. I was like, this is my teenage boy dream. I'm a huge fantasy nerd. Come true. <laughs> I'm a little bit horrified. At, it's different when you're playing it on a console and you're looking at a TV screen and you're like right. stabbing a dragon in the head, doing it in VR is just slightly more it's intense. Much, right? Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. a little bit much, but no, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Imagine shoving a business card in somebody's face <laughs> in, in, in VR. Right? Exactly. But, but no, I kid. And I'm also horrified at that notion. I think over the next five years, and actually you, you started to see it before the pandemic. And I think it'll be interesting to see how it, plays out. I think you're going to see more of the kind of local small group engagement. I, I think we're past peak mega conference and the idea of going through, it, it's funny, I, I guess they are doing South by Southwest this year. I, it's been a while since I've been, but there was a period of time where South by Southwest was like a really big deal and it was it still felt organic and, but it started to get really big. And one of the things I did there was I used to book tables at restaurants ahead of like weeks in advance. And then when everything was booked up and people are scrambling because the whole town was overrun by conference goers or whatever, I would strategically invite people like, oh, hey, I happen to have the, that coveted noon brunch uh, uh, reservation for eight. And I would hit up speakers and really swing for the fences. And as it turned out, that person was like looking to go to brunch and didn't. I even put a task rabbit on the line at Franklin Barbecue to wait for two hours for the top barbecue and then reached out to a couple of people that I really wanted to connect with. And those small groups that I put together, one year I rented a bigger Airbnb and, uh, and, a, and we got a chef. And we hosted a couple of small group dinners, 10, 12 people around the table, really kind of top tier folks. And, and we had a great 
time. It was highly engaged. If I was in the business of selling stuff to those people, there's no way that that would have been, wouldn't have been a positive ROI compared to sponsoring the conference. That I, I understand that some people have a sort of budget and, and they need to stay top of mind. So there's a visibility factor and keeping up with the guy next to you or whatever. But um, I, I think as travel budgets have been cut, as people have realized how much they didn't like being on the road, you're, you're going to see this like local, regional, drivable, walkable, bikeable kind of events where you know, somebody swings through and puts 20 people together. And, and that's going to be a really engaged, high quality event. And they're, they're going to see much better client engagement out of that. Would you ever, this is an idea that I've fielded on Twitter before and it had a mixed response. Would you ever take your family to a business, an event? And I'm not talking about like a networking do where people are changing hand, changing business mm -hmm. cards and things like that. But if a founder were to put on something like a picnic day and it's bring your kids and we've got entertainers and there's going to be like no work talk. It's really just get to know you and, and just relax and chill out in the sun. What do you think? Clowns or no clowns? I, for me personally, no clowns. I've got a thing for clowns. Yeah. 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 Okay. The only clowns being the, the VCs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, it's kind of interesting because like that is my world a little bit in the New York venture world. Like I, we have blurry lines as it is. My wife, Asia Singer, was writing a newsletter for a long time, a little derailed by having a baby, but she's going back to it called For the Love. And she has done some consulting work for my portfolio companies. Like we, we go to things together and we have no doubt that we will take our daughter to stuff. And I cannot wait to take my daughter to Betaworks, the co-working space where, I'll, where I sometimes work out of. So that feels totally normal and, and fine for me. And for some people having the magician or whatever, like they, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, daycare is important. Childcare is important, right? And and so I think you will probably see more events where you it's not leave your family at home, but it's engage your family on stuff, if nothing else, out of necessity, because somebody's got to watch your kid. And it'd be better if your kids hung out with other kids whose family you had shared interest with and stuff like that. So I love the idea of that. Charlie, you've been very generous with your time and with your wisdom. Give us a quick plug of where people can find you online to keep learning from sure. you. I am very findable across social media stuff at CEONYC. That's actually my initials. It's not a corporate thing. I don't know where to tell people to. I've been what I think of as blogging for 18 years, but now we don't call it blogging. Now it's a Substack newsletter. My blog is at thisisgoingtobebig.com, but... It also has a Substack, and you can subscribe to it there. I also run a weekly newsletter of things going on in the New York tech community at nycweeklynewsletter.com. But if you find me on Twitter, you can click off from there. All that stuff's findable. I will drop the links to all of those things in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Charlie O'Donnell, thank you very much for coming on B2B Better. Thanks for having me. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. 
Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything the Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Remote.